Welcome to the Association Strong Podcast, where we offer insight from both a seasoned association exec and an entrepreneur. I'm Dave Will. And I'm Tom Morrison. Listen in as we discuss and debate hot topics in the association community. Don't forget to subscribe and share us with your friends. Tommy Bahami. What Tom up, Big Davey? Welcome. This is Dave Will. Tom Morrison. We are talking today. This is the revenue episode. You know what I call this revenue? You know what I call this show, really, Dave? What do you, call what do you show call? me the money. So that's what this episode is, isn't it? It's, show it's me the about, money. It's about the money. And, uh, but, but hand in hand with that comes value. So we could have easily have called this the value episode. Mm-hmm. I often, when we talk about money, for some reason, people are afraid of profit. They're afraid of, of revenue and, and going after it. And that's something I really want to talk about here as the, as the entrepreneur, as opposed to the association professional. I want to talk about going after the money and not right. because I want a bigger boat, but because money is a measure of value. Money is a metric that equates to value, I think, in, in most cases. I mean, sure, you could probably find outliers. I know you can find outliers all over the place, but would you agree that money generally is a metric that defines the value? Deeper than that, money, my number one metric, that I, my number one chart that I look at, and it's from 1990 to today, is the net reserves of the Metal Treating Institute over a time period because your net reserves points back to everything. Because everything leads to value, which leads to engagement, which leads to non-dues revenue, which leads to revenue in the bank minus expenses leads to what's left over. So your reserves over time tell you how the association's strength is. And I say, show me the money that you have to go after the money. Because guess what? In 2005, Dave, our association had 62 grand in the bank. We couldn't take risk for members. We couldn't invest in new programs. We couldn't do much of anything. Before you go any further, can you talk about what's your what's your annual budget? This, I guess this is all public information. Yeah, right? our annual budget's right about a million one when we don't do our big trade show. It's a million okay. six when we do do our trade show. So, but now get this. I always indicate everybody in my intros that our association, because it's true, has grown over 2,600% in its net reserve since 2005. And what does that mean to us? This year with COVID, our board was able to make a choice to let our members pay whatever they wanted to in the second quarter. If they didn't have $1, they could pay $0 and we would consider their dues paid up for the quarter. It's a $170,000 nut in the second so quarter. Let's, I mean, you just mentioned COVID. Let's put a little time stamp on this. So we're recording this in the, right in the middle of COVID. It's the summer of 2020. So just to, I mean, if, if we're mentioning, mm-hmm. I think, things that are going on in the world like COVID, we have to mention what time we're talking about it because our perspective is going to be completely different in one year from now. Well, but here's the key. This perspective doesn't change because no matter what crisis you're in, I don't care if, we're, if you're listening to this in 2028, this same stuff, the going after money is the same because no matter what crisis you're in, when you have enough reserves, you, ha- you can take risk of remembers. You can put 300 grand into a new program that could change the dynamics of, uh, of loyalty and, and membership growth. You could offer members a chance to waive their dues in a, in, in a bad economic time. If you don't have money in the bank, you can't do that for your members. So when people ask me, Tom, what's the right number for reserves? Is it six months? Is it 12 months? I just tell them, look, you can't have enough in reserves. I know some associations today. There's one particular association that I'm very close to. Their annual budget is $9 million. $7.5 million of it comes from their big trade show. Guess what? Their trade show got canceled. They got a $9 million budget. They're going to have about a million and a half of revenues this year with a $3.5 million labor. 
No, were they able to turn that trade show virtual and make money off of it? No, not even close because they had to, to mitigate it. They had to reschedule it from April to August and then August it canceled again. So they've had, I don't know what the latest story is on it because this happened so recently. But my point is, is that your reserves allow you to take great risk for your members, develop programs, R&D, as well as offer back some rebates to them in bad economic times. So I don't think you can have enough money. When you build a good value proposition and people are buying the crap out of your products, you should never spend money frivolously to not have a lot of money in the bank. I've got a couple of members one time that asked, Tom, why are, we, why are we hoarding our money? And I'm like, well, we're hoarding the money. It's not really hoarding. We're not going to have hot products if people don't buy stuff to generate revenue. We're going to have the hottest products if we can. And we're not going to spend money frivolously just to spend it so we don't look like we're holding on to money. So I think the associations need to grab great value. Don't spend money just to spend it. We spend thousands and tens of thousands of dollars on very specific problems that we need to solve for our members. But after that, we leave the money in the bank. You know, so you had sixty some odd thousand dollars of reserves in two thousand five, and it's I don't even what's twenty six times that. What, what what do you have now? In we have reserve? we 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 have a million six. A million six, and so that's about one and a half times your annual budget, which means you could go a year and a half without revenue, right, and still survive. What is the typical? I think six months, at least from a business perspective, you want to have six months of burn in the bank. Meaning I think six, six, six months, months is the best practice, but I think after COVID, you're going to see it go to a year at least. And, and so is it reserves, I know for a business, profit goes into innovation. Most mm-hmm. of the time, profit goes into innovation. A little bit goes into the employees and the owner's pockets, at least in small business, I can, I can say that. In small business, I would define as anything under like 50 million in revenue. Right. I mean, small business still actually, if you look at a PricewaterhouseCoopers, they consider small business anything under 250 million. Mid-market, is like a, a half so that, into a to many billion is mid market for right. big, but when you're talking to people like me an entrepreneur i consider a small <laughs> like anything under 50 million right. in revenue so and for an organization 50 million under in, in revenue generally speaking profit goes into innovation and growth mm-hmm. And so, sure, we have reserves, we have money in the bank because we need to make sure if something happens, we can still pay our employees. Right. So when it comes to profit for an association, where does, where does an association spend its excess revenue? Like explain to me how, an, I don't even really understand this. How does a nonprofit work in terms of revenue? What makes it a nonprofit? Well, what makes it a nonprofit is just its mission. It's filed with the IRS for a particular mission and to be a tax-free organization, they get approved. So once you get approved, then you're not gonna pay any taxes on everything other than non-dues revenue that's considered not outside the realm of your purpose. So like advertising and things like that, there's a, what's called a U, but it's a tax on unrelated business income that doesn't suffice your purpose. You know, they take in dues, they take in meeting income, they take in training, whatever, all the revenue streams, and they will spend that in a budget. Now, some I've seen some organizations, associations that actually have a, in their bylaws, that they're to be a zero-based budget. So whatever they think they're going to bring in, they have to spend all of that. They have to because their governance says they're going to be a zero-based budget, spend all their money for the benefit of the organization. I don't like oh, that. How do they build a reserve? You know, I really, I, I don't. I, well, Unless here's their how they, budget here, includes here, Here's how they build a reserve. It's like, in a, it's like in a condo association where they're parking so much away for the, for the reserves to do the roof and that kind of stuff. 
most zero-based budgets, I think, put in, say, 10% to build some reserves of some sense. Right. So it must be, so it's baked into the budget is the reserve savings or whatever you want to call it. And, and others like us, we don't have a zero-based budget. We, we, we sit down with our budget team, our finance committee, and we outline what do we want to spend money on to help the members do their stuff this year. And we outline that. And then we look and project dues, training income, meeting income, all the income streams. And whatever's left over goes into reserves. And we like building reserves because on reserves, we make interest income. And when you're making interest income, that's money that you can use to not. Now, we don't use it as a part of operations. But when you're considering dues increases and stuff, sometimes you can use interest income to eliminate, you know, if you want to raise dues 5%, well, now you don't have to raise it 3%. So interest income is income that comes in that you don't have to charge members for. Now, we're very fortunate. We, our big trade show, our association budget is operational under all the revenues exclusive of interest income and trade show income. That's how you really want to get to. So if you get to this moment right now, so many associations are having a hard time because as much as 50 to 70% of their annual income is coming from their trade show and their trade show got canceled and they're getting so maybe 10 to 20. What's the typical amount that comes from dues? I thought, I thought the dues revenue is typically about a third to a half of the revenue of an association typically. Now, I know there's lots of different kinds of associations, but is that your understanding or am I, am I off on that? So our association is about 72% on any given, any given year. Now, that's You're a trade normal. association. Yeah. Most, most associations are somewhere between 60 and 70%, if not 80% dues income, because not a lot of them are very successful at non-dues revenue, which is why we're talking today. You know, the, the non-news revenue thing goes back to what we talked about in the live webcast we did where you need to have great value. And value comes from distinctly looking at areas where members need services to help them be successful. And they need to be things that are really big pain points. Like our members, they're business owners. So they suffer from a lot of uncertainty about the future. So we have a sales forecasting program with one of the top forecasters in the country, ITR Economics. We give them our sales data from our members. They give us their sales number every single month. And our members get a historical report for that for free, which makes our dues very valuable. They'd spend tens of thousands to get it and they get it for free from us. And then we give that data to the forecasting company and they do a one, two and three year projection of what sales are gonna be. And guess what? They're very good at this. In 2017, they said 2019 was gonna be 1.9% decrease in sales. Guess what? We're at 1.85. They told us That's that in 2017. Crazy. It's really crazy. So, so we That's based take, on the data that you're providing them or is that based, it, are it, they it, pulling other things into, the, into it, play here? We have, for the last 50 years, our industry sales have followed two leading indicators. So in six months, when, this, when, this, when those two leading indicators drop this month, six months from now, our member sales are going to drop. So they take their business models with those two indicators and match them in with our member sales. And then they project for us. So we're about to have a webinar tomorrow Actually, it's later this afternoon on our next sales report that just came out. Things are looking hairy for this, like this year, but they're predicting a 13.5% increase in sales in 2022. That's great to know today. That gives you great hope as a member. So our goal is to take a very unclear future and make it crystal clear as we can for our members, which is very valuable. You look at things like training, professional development. These are all things that are very big for our members. And, and we, we dig into them and, you, and see how we can generate either more value to get more dues or we charge for the service and get more non-dues revenue. Now, your organization is the Metal Treating Institute. Do, 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 is there other certifications in, in your industry? Uh, no. We have the only certifications that, that are in our industry. We've developed six certification programs in the last 10 years. And they're nice to have. They're not mandatory. Nobody requires them. They're not, they're not mandatory, but what they do do is they, they help our members meet. Our members don't have mandatory CEs or training that they need to have, but they need to have a training program in place. 
And when an auditor comes in to audit you in our industry and they see that you've got the Metal Trading Institute certificates in your programs in your place, it automatically suffices all the stuff that they need because yeah, we, we nice, like I said though, nice to have. Like yeah. it's, it's not mandatory. So the the reason I bring that up is you know my background. I I but I'm going to share it with the with the listeners here. So I had a company called Peach New Media. It was a learning management system where we did on-demand content and live content, webcasting, all kinds of so in a huge niche that we focused on was CLE, continuing legal education, CNEs, CPEs, CMEs, but all the industries that we focused on primarily were mandatory credit industries. Like most states require a certain number of continuing legal education credits for lawyers. Coincidentally, I I live in Boston in in Massachusetts and uh, coincidentally, Massachusetts is one of the few states that does not have mandatory credit for attorneys. But having said that, and the reason I bring this up is because when there's mandatory credit in any industry, that's a money maker. When the oh, government huge. says to somebody that you have to do something, man, is there money in that? Huge. So when I look at associations, sometimes the richest associations are the ones where they're getting a, a little help from from Uncle Sam, who says, right. "Okay, well, there's a whole industry of people that we are requiring to be certified: you know, doctors, lawyers, and so on." And man, is there money in that? Now, here's an interesting one. There's a CLE provider, a private CLE provider in the space, and I am trying to remember the name of the company. Uh, David Schnurman is the founder of this company, and I cannot remember the name of his company. Oh, Lawline was the name of the company, Lawline. And they were providing high enough quality content. They would argue it was like, incredibly high quality content. I don't really know, but it was high enough quality content at a super low price. Right. So what was happening is you have like the North Carolina Bar Association. The, the, I know there's a bunch in Florida where you are. Every single state, Illinois, is, Illinois State Bar Association. So every one of these states was freaking out because they were losing business to right. online this national provider of CLE. Super cheap. I think they had like a lifetime membership for 750 bucks. Mm -hmm. Whereas ISBA and NSBA, all these bar associations in every state, that's their bread and butter. That's where where they make most of their money. So it's really, really interesting to be a part of that industry in a time when private was starting to invade the association space. Super, super interesting. But my point, long-winded point here is that mandatory credit is a huge source of revenue. What's interesting is I found the organizations that did not have mandatory credit but tried to um, put courses out there for sale always struggled to sell their content. Now there's certifications, there's micro-credentialing, and this is all a new industry that our friends Keith and Adrian uh, Segundo at Limitless Mm -hmm. ASR, they're capitalizing on this right now by bringing these programs to a lot of organizations that do not have mandatory credit, but want to create some value like you did, create value around a program like that. What well, else about learning? What other, what other learning? I mean, the learning department in, 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 in any association is a revenue source, whether it's here. conferences or on-demand content. What tricks or tips do you have? Two things. How do you sell and what do you charge? So how to sell. People do not buy education. They just don't. They buy achievement. So people don't go out and- So that's the credentialing go, is what you're talking right. about. They don't they run out the, to, they don't run out to the ASAE badge. and sign up for online training to learn about engagement and learn about this. They sign up- You go to YouTube for that, don't you? Right. Well, you actually they, want to just learn something. You can go someplace where you get no proof 
Right. But what they do buy is the CAE. If you're yeah. a staff level person, you don't go out and get training. You don't go seeking training. You buy the Qualified Association Specialist Program through FSAE. So, so yep. you buy the, the, the achievements. The moment we took, we had like seven or eight courses. The moment we band, bonded those courses together to create a certificate program, sales went through the roof because everybody wanted to be a qualified furnace operator. No one wanted to buy a course on metallurgy. But the moment we gave them three, digit, three letters behind their name that said they took the course, they snapped it up like that. So you want to make sure when you're looking at your learning, what courses can you pin together to create a certificate program? And all the certificate program, it doesn't certify their performance. It just certifies that they took 10 hours under these learning objectives and these courses over a period of time. That's all it does. So all you're doing is certifying that they took the learning and passed the courses. The second thing is how you generate the money, pricing levels. So there's two types of pricing levels. The first one is that you get as much money from every user you possibly can. And that's a low engagement strategy because not everybody can afford it. There's a number of associations that do that. The other pricing model is if you price your learning to where almost everybody can afford it, but you want to make sure you can still make good margin. That's my model because I want 80% of the people in our program at 70 or 60% of the market value than having 20% of the people taking it at 100% of the market value. So you want high engagement and high sales, high right. volume. Well, here, high volume, lower margin is what you're suggesting is the more lucrative approach. Well, if you do it digitally, we, all of our training income comes in from online training and it doesn't take a lot of, when the, the system works so well that it doesn't take a lot of human hours to man it. People log in, they take it, it issues their certificate and no one was involved. So that's how we're able to charge less is because our, our cost per user is really low. If you got a lot of human interaction in the process, then you're going to have to charge more. My goal was to get a process to where we had very little human interaction with the training process. And then we could bring the price down and widen the engagement tremendously. And we've done that. It, it generates probably, this year we're going to do 150K in online learning with a group of just four people. Tom, let, let's get off learning for a second. Let's talk about dues revenue. Because mm -hmm. I, I know that a lot of people, like we just wrapped up Non-Dues-A-Palooza and PropFuel was involved in that along with a bunch of other people. Really well done conference by Terry Carden. I mean, despite uh, every in-person conference being canceled, a lot of people are getting very yeah. creative in how to deliver these things. And this was the inaugural year for Nanduzapalooza. She did such a great job. Now, but oftentimes you hear people say, look, I don't care, non-dues, dues, it's revenue. So let, mm -hmm. let's talk about dues revenue. And if you don't mind, I'd like to kick this off because I think there's so sure. much opportunity. This is where I think a lot of associations Oh gosh, I don't know how to say this out without probably pissing some people off, but a lot of associations do not see themselves as a sales and marketing organization. Like right. there's a lot of marketing, but you know what marketing does? Marketing sells stuff to existing members and right. tries a little bit for new acquisition. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for marketing. In fact, PropFuel is, is falling very, very quickly, falling into the marketing uh, genre of tools. And, and forgive me, but there's going to be a few comments in here where I, I talk around the, the process that we use of asking questions, capturing the need or capturing the context of a situation and then acting on it. So that's, so there's going to be some, some of that discussion here, but only because that's how I see the world right now. But so let's talk about the membership stuff. You have the member acquisition. Mm -hmm. So many great ways to drive member acquisition, but there's a lot of people taking advantage of digital marketing right now. For me, that's questionable in terms of the outcome. I've seen a lot of people dump more money into digital marketing than they're getting out of it. There's one organization, International Technology Law, 
bunch of technology lawyers that are holding a bunch of webinars, of course, in the spirit of COVID. And what they're doing is they're opening it up to the public for free, but then they take all of the people that came to the webinar that are not members and they look at them as, as a hot ticket to sell to. Mm-hmm. And so they were actually using PropFuel. So they'd ask a few questions, starting with one question and then ultimately leading to, hey, would you be interested in a membership at iTech Law? And this was awesome. 88%, Tom, 88% of the people that came to the webinar that were not members and answered that question, 88% said, yeah, I'm interested. So you would think the logical thing, and I'm not going to say what they did or didn't do at iTech Law, but the logical thing there would be pick up the phone and start calling the hundreds right. of people that said, I want to be on your team. Number two is which, what PropFuel does is it alerts somebody internally, but it also sends emails directly to that person, giving them very, very simple instructions. We're so glad you want to be a member. Click here to do it. And here's right. how. So that's, that's the member acquisition. Then you have the first year members. Now, somebody once told me, this was, I think it was uh, Infusion Nurses Society once told me that the first year members are the most likely to click on things. They're the most likely to do stuff, but they're also the most likely to leave and not renew. Right. And so the first year is such a critical period of time, which I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. First year is such a critical time that we need to get them engaged right from Mm -hmm. the get-go in that first year. And we got to start selling renewals 90 days out, if not sooner. Like you got to start talking about that renewal 90 days out. And if they're not thinking of renewing, find out why and address it. So that's okay. So then you got the member general membership group, right? And I'm skipping a lot of categories like students and retired and so on but you have the general membership. And when it comes to renewals, whether you're a rolling renewal organization or an annual, uh, everybody renews at the same time, you've got the lapsed members, right? Mm -hmm. People that are in the grace period right now, but their membership really has expired. How do you get those lapsed members to pay attention and actually renew their membership? And then you have the people that, that go past the lapsed period. Then you have dormant members that have been gone for years. There are so many ways to engage these people other than just sending them emails. Right. And I think that's where a lot of associations fall flat on their face is their marketing and sales efforts associated with acquiring and retaining members is weak. And that's my, that's my soapbox. I think a lot put a lot of effort in recruiting and they put a lot into the 30 to 60 day renewal, but it's the in-between the service part, which I think why we for 10 years, actually 12 years now, we've had not an average of 96% retention rate every single year. The only members that we have lost in my tenure, barring a couple, is they can't, they, they, they're going out of business or they couldn't afford the dues. That's the only two reasons. If people have money, if people are members and they have the money to pay for it, they, they never leave us because we're providing value all throughout the year to them. So we got to talk about value. Because mm-hmm. you just said they can't afford the dues. They can't afford the dues, but they can afford other stuff that's way more expensive because it creates more value. So now we're getting into this conversation of money being a metric of the value, right? right. So there's no difference between it's too expensive and I'm not getting enough out of it. Those are the same thing. There's, it's the same comment. Well, when I, no, when I say, when I say they, ha- they don't have the money, it's, it's typically, we've experienced it twice. In 2009, we had mem- I literally had a member call me and say, Tom, my dues is 300 bucks and I got 100 bucks from the bank. You know, we, we've only had, I think, I can count on my hand in 15 years the number of people that were doing well, had the money to pay for the dues and just decided not. But, and why, why did they, they leave? Did they have rent money? Yeah, they had rent money. So they paid the rent value. Well, 
but but those, those are necessities. Association memberships are, are in a, most people's mind, they're an intangible, and your ability to turn that intangible value into a great thing that they can't live without is the challenge. It is a challenge, but that's the, that's a key challenge to think about. So at PropFuel, we started as what we call a nice to have. Like mm-hmm. PropFuel in the early days, three and a half years ago, that was the early days for us. We were considered a nice to have. You know, we were a recognition software. It's like nice to have. We've turned ourselves into a revenue driving machine mm-hmm. for organizations, which now makes it a must have. And right. So how do you create a must have out of your association? How do you, and I'll tell you how some associations do it. I think NASSP, National Association of Secondary School Principals. Now, this is just another one of these organizations that we work with. And so I get to know them pretty well. So I may be speaking, you know, I might not have a high level of accuracy in all the things that I'm saying when I, when I reference these clients of ours, but one of the biggest pieces of value they provide principals and teachers is, well, I guess this would be primarily principals, although I thought teachers, anyway, so this is an example of how I don't know all the intricacies, but they provide insurance. You join NASSP, you're covered. Right. That's a must have. That's huge. Right? Yes, you have a must have. So now when they go around for asking for renewals, which would you be, you would be surprised to hear the renewal is really, really high, the renewal rate, Mm -hmm. because it's a must have. If you're a principal, Right. You're going to belong to them at the very least because they provide you with insurance sure. to, to cover your butt if something happens. So that's, my point is, what is that thing that makes you as an organization a must-have? I agree. Well, that, that's going back to understanding when your members get up out of bed, we understand what our members are going through every single day because we talk to them enough. A lot of associations I've talked to don't like to get down and dirty into their business's income statements and balance sheets to understand at that level. You have to get into those balance sheets and income statements to understand where the frustrations that your members are going through, because that's where your highest pain points are. And when you have high pain points that you solve problems for, like that person's highest pain point is I got to have insurance. I got to limit the risk that's associated with me. And obviously the association gave them an immediate remedy by providing insurance. So our association, I think any others out there, you have to look at those pain points. You only have to have four to five pain points in order to drive value. Some people, like we talked in the last episode, 150 ways to join our association and grab value. You don't need that. You really only need about four to five key value drivers to drive 100% of your membership to want to stay members because they all have this. Yeah, I would actually argue that's more valuable than having too many. There's one organization I belong to. I'm not going to say who it is because I'm actually going to say something negative about them. They do way too many things. Mm -hmm. They don't do any of them world-class. Right. And what I'd rather belong to is an organization that does three or four things, but does them really, really well. Hey, there's one more thing I'm going to mention, and then we ought to wrap this up. Member stories. Our last episode was about creating a passion in the industry, and we talked about member stories. But member stories and testimonials are a really, really good way mm-hmm. to find out why people are joining your association. I mean, you might have some perspective, some idea. Maybe NASSP thinks it's the insurance benefit. that That's the reason people join. But it'd be really interesting to ask for the member story. How has this organization really touched you as a mm-hmm. person? I think you might even be surprised, Tom, if looking at the Metal Treating Institute, how did MTI really touch somebody as, 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 a, as a person in their career? And I'll bet, I'll bet there's some really touching stories, even for an organization like MTI. There are, there's tons of them. There's tons. And we'll talk about that on the next 
Tom, thank you, brother. I love these. This is fun. This is our second one. I wonder if I we're know. still going to be happily married like this by the like the fifteenth or twentieth episode. Yeah, you know, and and all of our followers. I hope our followers are just coming the in. Hordes. Every time. The just, hordes of followers. They're waiting for the next show, Dave. Because the next time we get together, we're going to talk about the blank that's going to make your association awesome. And if you want to know what the blank is, you have to show back up because it leads the value, it leads the money, it leads the reserves, it leads the good things for your association. So don't miss it. I think the next one might be the first of a two-part episode, too, if I'm rem- remembering correctly. Yes. That's exciting. Oh, right there. Two-part. Yes, it's going to yes, be yes. like the reruns. Remember, not the reruns. Remember when you'd be watching, like in the 80s, you'd be watching The Love Boat, and every now and then on The Love Boat, like you get to the end, and like the, a big storm is coming, and, and all of a sudden, like somebody's hanging off the edge of the boat, and it's like to be continued, and you got to wait till the next Saturday night at 8 p.m. to watch it. But you know what I hate worst. even more is when, you're, when, when, they, when they cut away, and then they come back and say, five years later, I'm like, what happened in the five years? You'll find out (laughs) in the next episode. We hope you gain some inspiration that will help you run an efficient and effective association just like a business and maybe laugh a little with us. If you have a topic you would like to hear us talk about, or if you just want to reach out to us for any reason, you can contact us at Tom at TomMorrison.biz or Dave at PropFuel.com. Give us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget, subscribe and share with your friends.